You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Andrew F. Sullivan is the author of Waste, which was a Globe and Mail best book, and the short story collection All We Want Is Everything, another Globe and Mail best book, and finalist for the Relit Award. With Nick Cutter, he co-wrote The Handyman Method, and his new novel is The Marigold. Thank you for joining me, Andrew. Thanks for having me, Rick. Great to be here. You know, this was such an interesting book because even before the book actually begins in the epigram, you you, you caught my interest immediately. Uh, you, you quoted Rob Rob Ford, yeah, Rob our previous mayor, our uh, our mayor who was famous for doing uh, crack cocaine. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And, and so as soon as I saw, and the quote you give is, is everything is fine. And this is well known as a, a meme with a cartoon with a little dog sitting in a room where everything's on fire and the dog says, everything is fine. And so when you begin a book with Rob Ford talking about uh, everything is fine and mayor of Toronto and it's set in Toronto, we already know. <laughs> Oh, at the world's on fire. So, so just give our our listeners a a brief precis of the of the brief and uh, exciting career of Rob Ford. Well, Rob Ford was a politician. His father was a politician. Uh, they owned a sticker company, and Rob was um, sort of a proto-Trump. He ran on a very um, populist platform in Toronto. He was kind of seen as a joke and a mess and just a clown. But he connected with people and ended up getting elected as the mayor of Toronto, which is Canada's biggest city. And then we had three or four years of chaos as his mayoralty led to things like an expose of his drug use, um, just showing up drunk at many different events, acting out like really wild quotes on TV uh, about what he was doing out there um, and a media circus basically for four years. And uh, although he, you know, tragically died probably seven or eight years ago, he left a big imprint on the city. He was a big personality and he was famous for, for when, you know, everything was going to shit saying everything is fine. Uh, and now his brother, Doug Ford, is actually the, I guess for Americans, basically the governor, the premier of Ontario, the province that Toronto's in. So his brother, who is much uh, more cunning and terrifying, uh, has become the leader of our province, um, sort of on the back of his brother's earlier political success. So the Ford family continues to be involved in all kinds of corruption in Ontario. And uh, it felt appropriate to open the book with Rob, who is a, I would say, kind of a folk hero slash anti-hero in some ways. He's kind of like, you know, a premonition of what was to come. And uh, 
yeah, he was sort of a precursor to, you know, well, how does someone like Trump get elected? Well, how does someone like Rob Ford get elected? So we kind of saw it first in Toronto. Yeah. Uh, uh, thanks for that warning. It's too bad we didn't heat it. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I think that is interesting about this book is it's really an exemplary book at using fiction to tell a truth that is really difficult it's actually it's pretty easy to to say but it's difficult to understand in detail the truth that this talks about is something a feeling i think that everybody in this world has which is that the world is suffused with a secret kind of rot <laughs> and it's going to you know get us in the end and in your book, the rot is has come out to play. So talk about, um, you know, and it's a main character in the book. Did you conceive of both the wet and the city of Toronto as characters in this book? Because they seem to loom rather large. Yeah, no, most definitely. I think for me... Yeah, it's one of those things where there's so many characters. It's such a there is a broadcast in this book that the city itself kind of becomes part of it. Um, you know, it's cold, it's wet, it's grimy, it's gross, but it is a place that's very inhabited and lived in. And so um, it was really important for me to kind of feature it that way, but feature it in a way that feels natural, the way like uh, David Cronenberg does with his films, where it's, it just happens there. The city is part of it and you feel the fabric of it. The way you would in Crash or in Rabid or in um, Dead Ringers, but it's not doing this Canadiana thing of. And then we went and saw the Maple Leafs and ate a Timbit and had a double double coffee and then took the Via train. You know, it's not trying to overly signify. So yeah, no, it was definitely. I wanted to write a story of a of a city. I wanted to take on that scale and challenge myself. And then the wet is sort of, yeah, it's the it's the flip side of that. It is a the sort of, you know, the broad stroke of the metaphor is not subtle. I'm not an especially subtle writer, but it is almost a manifestation of the alienation and the isolation and despair of urban living, the 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 fragmented sort of atomized nature of life. And then this sort of fungus that is the ultimate uh communal living let's say um there's this aspect where you know they it, it's asking people at first you know aren't you lonely don't you think maybe your life could be better well you know we're down here and we're doing great uh but also this idea too that the, the past is i mean it's it's loaded with a bunch of things the wet can be a lot of things but it is loaded with the past and the weight of who came before you and what we sort of build our lives upon without even knowing it, because we can't, you know, our connection to even a hundred years ago is so tenuous. Um, we barely have, you know, personal memories of that at all. And even within our families, you know, that starts to fray and life kind of becomes more myth. And so the wet is also kind of part of that myth of like who came before. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I super admired about this book was the construction and the plotting you mentioned a lot of characters which is that but as we read it it feels like it's beautifully orchestrated i'm wondering if this was accomplished through 
just inspired as inspired improvisation or if you wrote out the skeleton at least of the score so to speak to you know know where you were going or did you just like plunge into a big bag of the wet and come out the other hand uh i think no it's i I mean the structure is something i'm very proud of and how it's put together and i mean it's off-putting for some audiences who just want to like rip through a book but i think for me like we have these sweet chapters which are sort of individual people who live in the main tower the marigold that's at the center of the narrative but the structure to me was really important so i maybe wrote the first twenty thousand words just to get into the world and the vibe of the place which is important to me to kind of not worry or think about who's going to critique what or do whatever like we're making art we just got to go for it but then after you know 20 or thirty thousand words you got to be like okay what do i have <laughs> where is this going you know you, you know you, i mean you want to make sure that it is compelling and there's a reason for things and so no i did i mean i work a full-time day job and this was a huge undertaking so after about twenty thousand words i did start you know little notes of like each chapter up on the wall so you know 30 pieces of paper kind of floating around the room but they're very loose and they're very at the in the early stages they're very malleable um so chapters did move around characters did move around there was a lot of editing my, my editor on this book jen albert is a great editor and she really took me to task she bought the book and then she was like okay here's your eight thousand word editorial note like get to work. And I basically retyped the whole thing just to get the feel of it. Like what was each sentence doing and the sequencing of the suites and the sequencing of the chapters. You're right. All of that was extremely intentional, but evolved through the process of editing. So by the end, it all had a purpose. Um, and some things were left on the cutting room floor. Uh, and that's kind of how it has to be. I think when you're taking on something this big, um you are going to write things that maybe don't fit even if they're great and you have to kind of you know this book is actually you know under a hundred thousand words so it's not <laughs> a beast but it can feel like it because there's so much in there but i wanted to keep it short enough that you know it was still readable in a week for somebody it was you know in this sort of range where they could feel the world was overwhelming but there was a way out rather than a tome of like 500 pages you know it, it was a super compelling read i just loved being in this world and and one of the things i i noticed was you talked about your editor my god it's the writing in this is really beautiful it's like every page there are three or four sentences that i, I would read and think my god i've got to highlight this because it's such a great sentence i'm gonna have to ask him about it now now i've got like 15 pages of notes <laughs> so and just to, kind of <laughs> just to to give our listeners here's one thing they said was he was a man on fire with no one willing to put him out you know there are so many sentences like that in this book was that the result of many revisions and lots of rewriting or did those just fall, fall off the tip of your pen and you said yeah I mean, I do think I can lean towards like a more lyrical style, especially when left to my own devices. So I think that was just, yeah, the fire coming out of me a little bit. You know, I wanted to write a book that I don't think I could like that 
I didn't care if it get got published or not. I was kind of like, well, fuck it. I'm going to just write this thing. I'm going to be, I'm going to use every trick I have and play with all the words I want to play with. And, you know, and I did go back and judiciously take things out. I do, you know, I like to have these big sort of elaborate sentences sometimes, like the one that opens the book. But then I also do like to have these little short jabs, these little sort of, you know, um, casual asides of bigger revelations, things like that, sort of that undercut and kind of reset the reader. So yeah, I, I playing with language it, to me is so central to how I write and what I do. And the rhythm of it as well matters a lot to me. It doesn't mean that it's short or blunt sentences. It just means, yeah, choosing each sentence and seeing how it flows and what came before it, reading the work aloud, all that stuff. It really does. It matters a lot to me. And so with the Marigold, yeah, totally. The editing by the end, it was like, okay, why is this sentence here? And that's super valuable to do. A friend of mine, Tony Tulatamudi, is big on that about just sort of really cutting work down, not to make it shorter, you know, not to be like, oh, well, this needs to be 80,000 words, otherwise no one will publish it. But, you know, you're asking people to read this. So each sentence should have some effect, you know. You know, uh, you mentioned Cronenberg. Uh, <laughs> and if I'm not mistaken, another Canadian artist. And I think that the sensibility here is very similar in that um, the people have become, you know, enmeshed. And, you know, the city is rotting out, literally rotting out from underneath them. And so, so are the people. And I'd like to talk just about, um, you know, the kind of the setup for the book, too, because it's very, you know, it seems uh, at first I was thinking, well, this is very much a pandemic novel, but it's so much more than that because you catch us with the idea of this kind of contagious illness, but then you just draw it, drop it right down into the roots of of everything so that this you know this illness uh, might be named capitalism too yeah for sure I think yeah I, I started writing this book far before the pandemic like and then actually when the pandemic started I was like oh shit all right maybe you know all my observations and my expectations are wrong and we'll all come together and, you know, my cynicism and my, you know, uh, maybe I'll maybe I'll be proven wrong. And then after like three months, I was like, oh, no, I'm on the right track. And I just went right back into the book and was, you know, because it's not really about like it is about sort of decay and how things fall apart. Um, and they don't do that often in a spectacular fashion. They do it in increments and then all at once, you know. It's kind of like how a bridge falls apart. You don't see a brick falling off every day. You see it there one day and gone the next. But for years, something's been giving away within it. Um, and the same for the city and the people. So, yeah, I was kind of shook when the pandemic started. And I was like, oh, my God. But it did feel and I already had all the masks in there, as you know, and all the other things, too, and the helmets and the public health department. Uh, but I felt pretty confident by like july of 2020 that you know i could go back into this book and write it my way and yeah it was bigger than just oh there's an illness to me it was about like 
there are so many parallels. It is a story of almost systems at war with each other. Like when you're talking about capitalism, it has the old school landlords, the landowners, the people who are used to a certain hierarchy. And that's represented by the Marigold and Stanley Marigold who, who owns it. And then you have, you know, Threshold who are sort of the new tech Google neighborhood guys who want to just, you know, shareholders are the ultimate authority, not whoever owns the company. And you have these different forces at work, but then you also have that organic force of the wet that doesn't care about any of this, but still has a similar drive as these other entities to consume, right? And to uh, embody and to take and to use. Um, and so it's all these forces at work kind of against each other. It's a three-way war um, with the people losing in the middle, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's... What what a joy. <laughs> <laughs> and that's our lives. Thank you very much. Don't... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah I, I apologize. Uh, I do think there are moments of levity and lightness where I can put them in there. The uh, raccoons were part of me trying to... <laughs> it's very funny. And I love the raccoons. I used to work at a... I worked swing shift at a, um, a almond factory owned by Mormons in college and so i was there uh very late at night and the raccoons would just were having a heyday they loved that almond factory so, oh i bet they did yeah so it, uh as soon as i saw the raccoons and also where i live is somewhat rural and our neighbor two or sound for a while he thought it'd be a really good idea to feed the raccoons cat food on his porch no, no. I mean, I respect raccoons, but they're they're too smart for that. You can't be. You open that door, you don't know what's coming through the other side, man. They're they're uh, they're not your friends. They're they're natural beings. Obs observe, but do not touch. You know exactly. You know that's sort of my take. <laughs> Two of the characters I I really like uh, were um. Kathy and, and Jasmine. Oh, yeah. And, and I think I wrote that, in a sense, they're kind of the, the protagonists, you know, according to the center of the problem. So talk about creating these two characters, and especially, too, the way they're employed and, and who they're employed by. That is just a, a beautiful piece of uh, literary architecture. I mean, reading this book is just like, because on one hand, it has all the fun that you want out of genre fiction, but it, it's, you know, it's beautifully architected. It's like genre fiction in a beautiful setting, really well done. So talk about uh, creating Kathy and Jasmine and injecting them into your beautiful architecture covered with slime and disgusting critters. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I think Kathy and... Jasmine to me were based on people I know who work at, in like the healthcare field who are burnt out who have seen it all who really have you know responded to you know 100 overdoses and by now they're just like yep yeah, this is how you do it this is how you save somebody this is what you do like the practicality and the just reality of dealing with um you know what a lot of people see as the edges of society but doing it as a job and doing it as something like as a professional, um, there is sort of a little bit of a world weariness there. 
but also like a commitment to, you know, trying to do the right thing. Um, even when you see, you know, how it goes wrong. And so I think Kathy and Jasmine, you know, they are at war. They are sort of representatives of like a dying faction in this cold war of this book, which is, you know, the civic institutions, which have kind of surrendered themselves to corporate interests. So, you know, threshold, the sort of corporate face of this book has been providing funding to the government and has been, you know, supporting government initiatives. But that also means they can kind of come in and ask Kathy and Jasmine to kind of do their bidding. And, you know, Kathy and Jasmine are kind of put in a place where they don't have a lot of say. And so they're trying to craft their own story, their own like way out of being trapped between all these forces. And so you do get to see them on a ground level in a practical lived in sense doing their job and living their life. And I think that's always been a big part of my fiction in a way um, is that like doing the job is so much of a lot of our lives. Doing the job is how we spend at least, you know, a third of our time for a lot of us. Um, you know, I'd worked night shifts a lot of places. I worked, you know, my whole life. I still work now because I got to survive. And so do these characters. And I think that's not often, even in the genre fiction, often, you know, it's, it's the realities of work are sometimes not articulated. Um, I think that's something that the really early Stephen King stuff did incredibly well, like the night shift stories um where you know you got the laundry you got the warehouse you got the like just the grind of life and time and how much you lose to these institutions uh how much they own you in a way um that's really ripe for me for horror and i think that's kind of where kathy and jasmine came from that there is like a dignity to it but there's also a resignation that your life is not your own so i don't know if that speaks to it <laughs> you know, this book starts with uh, the beginning of a new building, and we meet a character who calls himself, uh, who's called the gardener, a and Stanley Marigold wants to build a, a, another tower. And so talk about um, the kind of the, the, the plot driver of building these new towers and, and Stanley Marigold and you know, the, all the people who kind of fall, uh, cling to the side of him like, you know, uh, lice or something. Yeah, yeah. I think, like, in the case of Stanley Marigold, he is sort of like the... Some people have put him as the villain of the book. I mean, I think he's kind of more just like an anti-hero. He's an, and he's antagonistic, but he's not... He's mainly just a following in his father's footsteps he's sort of this selfish avatar of like old greed who wants to sort of leave an impression on the city but is also so disconnected from regular people that it's he can't even really interact um so he struggles there and he's that adds like a certain level of brutality to him it was funny we had some early reviewers who were like oh this book is kind of like succession and i was like oh no 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 i love succession but it's not no no there's not like a fit but i do think there's parts of stanley marigold that lead people down that path i think like stanley is you know he does have that sort of callous nature to him 
um, and that unreality of his existence where, you know, you get to a certain level of money where, you know, almost all your problems can be paid away. But there are certain problems left over that won't go away. And maybe that's your father or maybe that's, you know, how you see yourself or maybe that's your relationships and you can't financially find a way out of those things. And so for me, that was a huge part of the book was having this guy who has all these things, who's trying to, you know, make his own mark, build Marigold 2. The original title of the book was actually Marigold 2. <laughs> and then rightfully so, my editor was like, do you want every interview you do about this book to be about, is it a sequel? No, you don't. So, um, you know, and that was also Marigold 2 was definitely in the spirit of me being like, fuck everybody. I'm going to write the craziest book I can. I don't care. I'm going to do all my little tricks and all my little things. And it was good to have my editor be like, okay, but if you call a book something two and there's no one, everyone's just going to ask you where the first one is. But that is very much uh, a good summary of Stanley Marigold's character. Marigold 2. He can't even have his own thing. It has to be, you know, the Marigold was technically his father's building. Now his father's going crazy. And he's out here trying to build Marigold 2. And he is being thwarted by things beyond his financial control. The natural world, basically. Deciding that the earth itself is not going to cooperate with him. And all the things that his father and everyone before him have done, all those things are coming home to roost. Um in the form of the wet. And so, yeah, he's kind of this guy who's sort of undone by the past and unwilling to imagine a different future. You know, there, there's one point where he says something like, I annihilate the past. Yeah. <laughs> That's how he sees it, right? He has to eliminate his father. He has to, I get a lot of, um, yeah, there's been, I've had some people reading my work recently where it has been like, wow, you're really obsessed with dads. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> but I think I have, yeah, I, I think there's this idea of like legacy, right? That's like, I have to annihilate the past to build my own future kind of thing. And Stanley believes that, but uh, struggles with it. And it's it, that's sort of his main uh, driver, I think, is um i am sort of obsessed with that you know it's a very american lit idea it's a very fitzgerald idea it's a very whatever um american lit 101 idea but you know faulkner as well you can't like the past is here it's it you live in it you live in its consequence you live in what came before you um and so that's like that's stanley's whole struggle i guess uh, not super sympathetic, but very real and very true to his character. Yeah, I, I love too your vision uh, of the future just being piled, heaped on top of the past and plastered over it. And you know, because uh, this it's a very Gib William F. Gibson uh, idea. You know, the future has arrived; it's just not evenly distributed. So there's parts of, you know, the Marigold where it's really high tech or there's a really nice restaurant. And then there are, are rooms in the same building where the um, inhabitants are probably dead, rotting and covered with uh, a highly intelligent fungus that has plans of its 
<laughs> and so I think that that's a really and and crazy that that really subtly I think it, you know again I'm thinking of Cronenberg. Uh, who you mentioned as, you know, a way often Kornberg's, you know, kind of futuristic stuff looks, it's set, you know, in old cities and it acknowledges the fact that the past is is here, but it, it's rotting and unpleasant. Yeah, and I think, I mean, Gibson's another, like, those would definitely be, I think, my Canadian forebears here. Um, because, yeah, the Marigold is sci-fi, but in the lived-in, melting destroyed way of Cronenberg or the you know the scuffed and bleeding sort of edge of you know yeah what William Gibson has out there where um the world is uh evolving but it doesn't mean it's a positive evolution for us you know it's a it's a yeah Gibson was a huge massive influence I don't get to talk about him as much because people are like, oh, it's a horror book. It's got a, but to me, this is, it's still Gibson. Like it's very much obsessed with, you know, the sort of uh, reality that, you know, the future is still dictated by capitalism, by corporatism and by, you know, who can afford what. Um and that seems so essential to his work and his vision. Um, and I do think I inherited a lot of that just through osmosis and J.G. Ballard too, right? Like, obviously, you write a book about a tower and you have a tower on the cover and people are like, oh, have you read High Rise? So I wrote an essay about High Rise's influence because um, Ballard is huge there too. Like, those, those are probably the three big influences on this book where it's, you know, Ballard is speaking to things before Gibson did without the idea of networks and sort of more technology, but the idea that, you know, our obsessions and our culture, you know, will change the way we tell a story and will change the way we convey meaning. And so uh, Ballard, I think, really informed Gibson's work. And I feel definitely like those those sci-fi writers uh, are really a big part of the Marigold. And part of the story of the book which yeah I don't get to talk about as much because you know they're like oh it's horror and I'm like well it is but it's the horror of you know we build our own horror you know we build our own caskets yeah you know I I I I have to say that I would agree with you I'd say this is you know very much a kind of science fiction at you know set set in the current day novel yeah. and it's a look you know what you were saying made me think that the present is always a bad band-aid that we put over a rotting infected past in an attempt to cover it up and hope that that it will go away and it it doesn't go away and that's one of the beauties of of this book uh you know i'm an old guy Sometimes late at night, I'll just turn on the TV and watch whatever I can see on some stupid cable channel. And I might happen to have watched the Weather Channel. And if ever there's a show on sinkholes, I am there. <laughs> I love sinkholes. And so this book gave me sinkholes. And I think... <laughs> One of the things I like about this book is that your sinkholes aren't just 
filled with, you know, dirt and maybe some old pipes, but they're filled with all the trash that falls into them. And I think, you know, that is a really interesting and compelling picture of the sinkhole. And under that trash, well, don't lift up that board because you don't want to see what's underneath it. Yeah, no, the sinkholes for me, I'd written a short story like a decade ago about teenagers obsessed with a sinkhole. And then I was like, well, I need to revisit that. And I, and so that was a big important part of the book for me too, is that I do think like decay and rot and other things are also generative. Like they create opportunity and that for these kids, it's an opportunity to, you know, escape from their world and also confront something horrifying. Um, Yeah. I think even with my editor at one point, yeah, we were talking and, you know, I'm like, oh, yeah, well, it is like a dark dystopic kind of novel, I guess. But I think it's sort of a novel about cities and can't outrun the past. And like, is it a genre book? Like, I don't know. And my editor's like, well, you do have like a creature made of people who lives in the sewer and talks to children. So I think it's probably a horror novel. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, we have that character of Cabeza who is this sort of amalgamation of various pieces and people um, living beneath the city, who's kind of, you know, looking for a way out and who is part of the wet or is maybe an exiled part of the wet or maybe used to be like, there's different interpretations there. I didn't want to lock every possible meaning in, but uh, I've really been heartened to see like the audience, the readers, there is a little bit of a Cabeza fan club. There is a little bit of people who are like, oh, the best character in the book is Cabeza, you know, who is just sort of this like friendly neighborhood ooze who wants to, you know, not be part of a giant collective, you know, who is still an individual and who desires to, you know, kind of return to the origins of wherever they came from. And so there is that sort of, you know, and the reality that I do think, you know, young people, teenagers, whatever else, are more willing to accept that about, you know, who to be like, oh, okay, this is what you are. All right. I guess we're just going to roll with that. That's cool. Um, so, yeah, I think it's definitely a big part of, um, the sinkholes and the teenagers and Cabeza are sort of this understory of the novel of, you know, trying to survive and build life out of ruins because, you know, what you see as like an apocalyptic wasteland, you know, the raccoons see as like perfect, um, you know, that, 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 you know, like there is, there can be, a sort of arrogance that that's why like when this is like oh it's a dystopia whatever like this isn't a book where it's like only the strong survive this is a book where you know you won't survive but i don't necessarily see that as like oh it's the most hardcore dystopic thing it's more like oh all of this is in flux we're flipping the mattress on you know society we're flipping the mattress on capitalism and it may grow through the other side but we're going to see what's maybe when you what happens when you flip it over um my editor talked about the book as you know not urban dystopia but urban fatigue the sort of wear and tear and tiredness of just existence 
And then what happens when that dramatically changes? And I think for the, the, the younger characters, they sort of are like, oh, wow, a new way to live, you know? <laughs> you know, uh, one of the things, too, uh, I think this book is a lot of fun to read because even in you have a, a flair for presenting a situation that is dire, that has the potential to be dire, dour, and a downer. But as you say, your characters kind of come out, well, I've got to get, you know, it's either I, I've got to get to work, I'm going to finish the end of this work day, and I'm going to deal with, with you know, the, the rotted humans who are reanimated beneath, uh, who knows what, a mat of moss, or what the hell is that? Or, or, you know, oh, wow, that's kind of cool. I've never seen anything like that that talks before. So, uh, so um, I think that the you have a, a good flair for writing stuff that has the, the feel of humor without just, like, fleeing jokes. So talk about approaching this... Uh, you know, rather dire scenario with a kind of a lighthearted sensibility. Yeah, I do think for me, actually, yeah, yeah, it's not like a joke machine, but there's definitely, there's a little bit of um, wry sort of <laughs> eyebrow raising and uh, yeah, just sort of um, quick uh, sub subversions of expectations and, you know, people kind of being bitchy to each other. Um, I think for me, that's really important. I think, I think humor does sort of suffuse all my work in a way, but it's usually a little macabre. It's usually a bit, um, uh, occasionally vicious. Um, but to me, it really does operate sort of like horror does. Horror and comedy are kind of aligned uh, in how they're, how they're uh, delivered so you are setting up an expectation and then you are subverting it and then reasserting the terms in another way you're setting up a scenario where you know there's going to be some grand revelation and you want to go against the audience expectations so you know there is a scene for example where stanley marigold is at a building site, he's talking about a new building that one of his ex-girlfriends is building. And she's bragging about it. And he's like, oh, well, you know, I don't think it's going to be that great. And he goes to leave and his assistant falls down in the pit. And he's like, ah, I got to get a new one. And then he goes back to his car and he realizes his assistant had his keys and he can't drive. And he's like, oh, God, now he's got to get his. So like, yeah, OK, how are we going to show this guy's kind of an awful person? Well, Yes, his assistant died. He didn't really care. But like the real inconvenience is that she had his car keys and now he's got to go get those. So that, that it is sort of a bleak humor in some in some ways. But I do think it's often there to show character and show, you know, I can't take myself too seriously. Like these books, if this was just a bleak descent into hell with no humor um i don't think it'd be much fun to read you know i do want and i am trying to like entertain myself as i go and i and i think it is about you know 
can I show a character moment with humor? Can I show, can I set us up for a horrifying thing that will happen later with a joke now to kind of set everyone at ease for a brief moment? So like with the sentences, sometimes it's about trying to have a narrative rhythm. So you, you know, you need the jokes in there or you need the like asides in there to uh, give people a slight breather before the next horrifying revelation or dreadful revelation. You know, I do think my books fall more into dread than horror. It's this idea that there's always something coming for you, you know? So maybe you need to just accept that. Uh, and the jokes maybe help that go down a little easier. You know, uh, one of the things this book is really good at is externalizing many things that we're doing now. But, you know, we're, we're, it's hard to talk about because, you know, it, we, we don't, it, it, it's just tough to talk about. And one of those things is living with lies. Mm-hmm. We, we all need some lies to just kind of grease the social machine. But at some point, some people stop just greasing the machine and become oil producers. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and so I, I'd like you to talk about using the genre tropes to externalize like a lot of you know the the quirks of today's society that seem to be working no longer to grease the machine but to just accelerate its slide down towards the pit yeah no i think for me the genre stuff yeah was it was is very much a way to like you said externalize to make flesh to make real um, concepts or ideas that you know don't really get expression through maybe a more realist narrative I'm also not super tapped into like realism um, the closest I get to realism ever would be like a sort of David Lynch realism like there's there's you know a fever dream of reality um, I mean I want there to be impacts and consequences and things that happen um, and I want the reader to feel those but I'm not super concerned with like for for misilitude. I'm not, you know, representation of reality perfectly uh, is sort of a, a loser's game in some ways. So, yeah, for me, like something like the wet is sort of that all encompassing hunger um, that, you know, I feel capitalism is sort of wrought for us. Um, this feeling that you can never get ahead, this sort of atomized individualism um, that really alienates me. But then having its total opposite there, which is the wet, as sort of initially a comfort and then a, a claim. Um, you know, the wet cajoles and asks and influences, but if it really wants you, it'll just take you, you know? And I do feel like a lot of cults and a lot of other groups operate that way, you know, when they really want you or they really want your assets or they really want what you represent, they'll just take it by force if they have to. Um, uh, obviously, the meat tastes a bit sweeter if you don't have to kill it uh, in fear, but, you know, it's willing to do what it's got to do. So the sort of ruthlessness of the wet was sort of intended as a counterpoint to Threshold and the Marigold family, like. They all want the same thing. They want you and they want you on their terms. 
So yeah, it felt very fun for me to be able to do that rather than try to create, you know, 27 pages of dialogue about, you know, how capitalist systems work or how, you know, interest rates are going to swallow us all or whatever else. Um, so I've always kind of played with both of these things. My short stories have as well. Um, I think genre is really a great way to talk about these anxieties and fears and explore these horrors um, without it turning into, you know, a series of bar graphs and pie charts. Um, they don't quite have the same bite as a fungus. Uh, and so, yeah, I think that's a big thing for me with, with the Marigold was to talk about all these issues that I was feeling, this pressure, this unending sort of grind, uh, but do it in a way where it comes to life, which is where you get sort of the monster of it all. And you have something like Cabeza, which doesn't fit and sort of offers maybe like an opportunity outside that system or something that could not be digested by the wet, something that was too weird or too self-possessed to fully uh, get swallowed up. You know, um, one of the things, when I think about this novel, I think it feels very realistic. Those descriptions of what's in the sinkholes, the TV sets, just all the windblown trash that you see, like in the empty lots if you drive through parts of Oakland or something. Um, it, it felt really realistic. And even to the point when you're down in the sinkholes and Cabeza pops up, you, you say, okay, sure. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that that's really, really like, you know, that takes some really um, smart writing. I, I would have a hard time describing this book as either particularly horror or particularly science fiction. I just, it's, you know, fully embraces the power of weird fiction. It's just weird. <laughs> and, and, yeah. and I think that's, you know, one of the strengths because science fiction and, and literary fiction that kind of realism i mean those are things that we aspire to but all of us everybody's weird in one way or another yeah yeah for sure i think it's really weird fiction is a good way to put it but of course then everybody's like oh so it's lovecraft or like, no it's not it's <laughs> but i do think you're right. I, I mean, if anything, I want the realist parts to feel real, like the what's in the pit or what's in. I want the world to feel tactile. I want it to feel lived in. I want it to feel like you could be there. And I want that heightened realism there so that, yeah, when something like Cabeza does happen or something like Threshold does happen. You're already buying into the world. And so now you just have to buy into these other things that are happening. Um I want it to kind of be that street level experience, that sort of in the gutter experience so that there's things to touch and kind of hold on to, you know, and then that um, really sets you up for accepting whatever I follow that up with. So, yeah, no, no, the, there's a definitely an attention to detail in my work for sure. And a longing, I think, to make it feel real enough 
that you are willing to come with me that extra mile when something like Cabeza does pop up. And I'm like, well, you already came this far. So let's just go a little bit further. Uh, and I think that's often what the weird fiction does. Good weird fiction, I think it often lures you into a sense of security in some ways, or it it allows you a foothold so that whatever happens next, you can fall back and you still have some, you're still standing, but you're the uncanny and the weird. Uh, you are never fully like safe, but you have ground, something under your feet that in some ways makes it worse because you're like, well, I'm still here though. You know, you can't just say, oh, it's totally fantasy. It doesn't exist. It's existing in that place between, you know, and those are always the scariest places. Our places between um, reality and unreality. If it's all reality, then it just is what it is. If it's all unreality, then you don't have to worry about it. But if you're not sure what's what, that's where things get scary. Uh, that That's a really interesting uh, perception because I think one of the, the most frightening aspects of our world at present is that we're not sure what's what or, or, you know, there seems to be no solidity to any of the things that used to be solid. We had three networks. They all yep. say the same news. Everybody yep. believed the same thing was happening. There's only one thing that could be happening at a time. Now we have a bazillion networks and there's a bazillion news and there's a bazillion different versions of the same events. And that is in itself very frightening. I think that's kind of, that's the fear that inhabits the world of the marigold. I mean, the, the, the gooey stuff is fun and I like it. A lot. I love the heck out of it. But the real fear is just the fear that reality has come apart at the seams. Yeah, very much so. I think that's a big part of it is that the world as you understand it is not like you're not playing the with by the same rules that the world is. You know, you you your rule book is out of date. Your attempts to deal with it are, you know, not working anymore. And you're not really sure what the new path is because there are so many voices clouding where you're supposed to go. Yeah, totally. Now, it's a great reading. You just finished uh a collaboration with with Nick Cutter, which I also found truly joyous to read, and and I can still go back to various parts of that and go, oh my god. <laughs> so I like you. Where are you going next? I I mean, I would I would love to see the Marigold too. <laughs> as far as that goes, <laughs> now you can write it, huh? Yeah, I mean, I'm hoping it won't be the Marigold too, but I am hoping to write something that is um yeah i'm hoping to write something that's uh, working on as many levels like something that is expansive and large and overwhelming um in some ways and that's taking narrative risks um so yeah i'm hoping it'll be about state capture and the oil industry and vampires and whatever else so yeah, again, it'll be a big swing, I think. You know, at this point in my life, uh, the books I'm writing, I may as well take big swings. Um, maybe when I'm older, I'll, you know, try to write something a bit more gentle or calm. Um, yeah. 
but yeah, no, I want to, I'm excited about it. Um, it's going to be fun to write. Um, I'm already working on it. Um, so yeah, right now it's called earth filled with blood and it's, uh, yeah, it's the start of something big that I want to do. So yeah, I'm excited about it and it'll be, uh, a big undertaking, but I need to do it. I need to make something. I need to, I need to flex those muscles again. And uh, yeah, Nick Cutter and I will probably collaborate on something else too. Um, it was a good experience and we like working together and the books we, the book we made was a very weird one too. It was a expression of both of us. Um, and there's other stories I want to tell in that mode, um, which maybe aren't as large but are just as uh intense um and so that's where i think nick and i work really well together so yeah no i'm i'm i've got a lot of books in me that i want to do um it's also just the the reality of being a writer these days too right is i work a full-time day job and <laughs> uh you know the money i do make from writing definitely helps make parts of my life easier but at times it can feel like working two full-time jobs. So you really are sort of uh, at the mercy of the economy around you. We'll put it that way. <laughs> at the mercy of the regal wet. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. The, the unseen but very real wet, yes. The ooze. I've been talking to Andrew F. Sullivan. His new novel is The Miracle. Thank you for joining me, Andrew. What a delight. Thanks so much, Rick. Always great talking to you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.